You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, I want to read it real quick, and we'll pray over the text, and then we'll dive in. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Now this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would come and remove any hindrances that would seek to stop us from hearing from you. It is what we need. It's what we desire. It's what we long for this morning. Father, and if there's any part of us that doesn't long to hear from you, God, I pray that you would come and by your sovereign power, remove those hindrances and deepen our longing to hear from you. That by your voice and that by your word, we might be set free to see and to know that you are the God who chooses instruments for your own purposes. I pray, God, that you would 
Do this as you lead us to the foot of the bloody cross, to the doorway of an empty tomb, and to the hope of the promise of heaven, whereby we might see and know the power of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, Jesus. Trust you to do this in that sum in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. So the story of Saul's conversion is probably one of the most startling and simultaneously encouraging stories in the entire Bible. It's startling because in this story, God executes his eternal plan of redemption in the life of a man who went from being a bloodthirsty terrorist to a blood-bought evangelist. The hunter and persecutor of early Christians became a radically transformed apostle of Jesus Christ, as one scholar said, that the hound of heaven, God himself, hunted this hunter down on the road to Damascus. Such a great quote. It's definitely a startling story for sure, right? But it's also a deeply encouraging story because in this story, we're reminded that no one is beyond the power of the gospel. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, God can still save you. And he can still make you his own. And he can still use you for things that are beyond your wildest dreams. The story is startling and encouraging because it's a visual reminder that shows us that just when it seems like all hope is lost, just when it seems like the church is about to crumble under the pressure of the culture and the heat of persecution, just when it seems like God's promise to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth is going to be cut short, just when it seems like all the powers of Satan, sin, and death are about to win. This is when God does the unthinkable by taking his worst enemy and transforming him into a blood-bought family member. This really is the story of a bloodthirsty terrorist who becomes a blood-bought believer. Think with me for a moment about Saul, the bloodthirsty terrorist. Luke's description of Saul, verses 1 through 2 of our text, it paints the picture of a man who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples, who actually takes it upon himself to ask the high-ranking religious officials in the land to authorize him to continue his murderous campaign against the church beyond the city of Jerusalem. The gospel has advanced beyond Jerusalem at this point. And so Saul wants to advance his own murderous campaign beyond the walls of Jerusalem too, because he wants to stamp out the cult of Christianity before it can grow any further. In Acts 22 verses 3 through 5, uh, you'd see that Saul, who became known as Paul by that time and had been arrested for preaching the gospel, describes himself as a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, the city of Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, an infamous 
professor of religion in Paul's day, similar to a John Piper or Timothy Keller of our day. He says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way, the way, uh, as early Christians were, were called this, the way. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Even many years later, Saul did not shrink from admitting that he was a bloodthirsty terrorist before Jesus saved him. You look later on in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he does it again. Saul again refers to himself as a bloodthirsty terrorist. He says it this way. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, what Saul is admitting here is that he once was a bloodthirsty terrorist who believed that he was fighting a God-honoring holy war against Jesus and his followers, even to the extent that he approved of the slaughter of Christians beginning with the first martyr, Stephen, back in Acts chapter 7. Now, I don't know. I don't know what kind of sins haunt your mind when you lay down your head on your pillow at night. But I do know this. I know Saul never forgot the bloodthirsty terrorist that he once was. He never forgot the horrific images of his sinful behavior. I imagine that Stephen's face and the faces of many other believers who were murdered on Saul's watch probably never left his mind. But I also know this. Those terrifying, shame-filled, guilt-ridden memories of Saul's violent, bloodthirsty, rage-filled, terroristic attacks, they only served to remind Saul and to remind us that no one is beyond the power of the gospel when the hound of heaven decides to hunt down the hunter. There is no sin that makes you beyond the reach of our sovereign God. God doesn't go hunting for those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundations of the earth, according to Ephesians 2, to then come home empty-handed. God doesn't walk into the orphanage of Satan, sin, and death to adopt an orphan without walking out those doors with a new blood-bought son or daughter. When God says, you are mine now, there's nothing that can change his proclamation of redemption over you. So there's nothing absolutely nothing that Saul did to deserve what happens next. God 
by his very own free will. And I might add that God is the only being who has possessed a will that is free from the shackles of Satan, sin, and death for all of eternity. This God, by his own free will, waited for the precise moment when he would save Saul and adopt him as his very own at a moment when then there could be no doubt in anyone's mind that it was God who elected to save a bloodthirsty terrorist so that he could become a blood-bought believer. See, Jesus is our sovereign Savior who is absolutely free to save those whom he chooses, despite the fact that those whom he chooses to save do not deserve the saving. If you look at verses 3 through 19 of our text, this is exactly what you'll see coming to the forefront. This truth that Jesus is the sovereign Savior of sinners. Look at verses 3 through 19. In these verses, the hero of our story and the hero of the entire biblical story from the Garden of Eden to the end of Revelation steps into the life of a bloodthirsty terrorist. He knocks him off his high horse of his self-righteous holy war. He confronts him for his horrific sin. He employs one of Saul's would-be victims to actually minister to him. He radically saves him from continuing his life of sin-filled war against God, and then he finally saddles him with a calling to proclaim the name of Jesus, the real one whom he had been persecuting. And he does this when he calls him to proclaim the name of that Jesus to the ends of the earth. Only Jesus does this kind of saving. Okay? Every other so-called God throughout history makes his subjects jump through hoops to deserve or earn his blessings. But not Jesus. Jesus sovereignly saves sinners who deserve death for their warfare against him. And when you look at verses 3 through 9, you can see Saul just happily making his way towards Damascus as he anticipates the murderous rampage he's about to embark upon when Jesus shows up. He shows up, knocks him off his high horse in a blinding flash of brilliant light, and he, and he asks Saul, hey, why, why are you persecuting me? And then he informs Saul that he is the Jesus whom you are persecuting as he reveals the intimate nature of what it means to be united to Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection, as Saul would later proclaim in Romans 6. See, in these moments, I believe, and there are other scholars who have commented, that in these moments, Saul began to understand the doctrine of our union with Christ. To be united to Jesus is to not only be united to him in eternal life through the victory of his crucifixion and his resurrection, but it's also to be united to him in his suffering as we carry our crosses down the winding roads of this life and as we journey towards heaven. In these moments, Saul 
was so blinded by the light of Jesus' presence that the men who were with him had to lead him into Damascus by the hand where he waited for three days. It's odd. Unable to see in the darkness while most likely pondering his own spiritual blindness until that fateful day on the road to Damascus. And I often wonder how often the Apostle Paul would relive those three days of blindness, remembering that Jesus was in a dark tomb for three days after his crucifixion. I imagine that those three days of absolute darkness, without food, without water, must have impacted the Apostle Paul to the darkest depths of his sin-filled soul that was now being set free without him ever lifting a finger to save himself. And unbeknownst to Saul, who again later becomes the Apostle Paul, God was still working on his behalf. God had no plan to leave Saul in the darkness where he was being saved. When God saves you, he does not leave you in the dark pit of your sin and rebellion against him. God was out and about orchestrating a meetup between Saul and one of his would-be victims named Ananias. In verses 10 through 16, we get to see what God was up to as Saul waited in the darkness of his sin, his shame, and his guilt. The conversation between Jesus, the sovereign savior of sinners, and the man of his choosing named Ananias, it's actually, actually a little comical. I say the conversation is comical because it goes exactly how you might expect from one point of view, but it also has a little twist thrown in there. You, you, you and I would expect Ananias to question God about being sent to pray for Saul. Saul is, after all, the bloodthirsty terrorist that everyone's been talking about, right? But after Jesus lets Ananias know that he's been feeding Saul some visions of Ananias's soon-to-happen visit, he also informs Ananias in verses 15 through 16 that he must go. For he, meaning Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the, the children of Israel. For I, Jesus, that's who's speaking, will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Did you catch it? Can you imagine being Ananias in these moments? Can you imagine hearing these words? Hey, I, Jesus, chose Saul, the bloodthirsty terrorist. Not only that, but he also says, Saul is the chosen instrument of mine, which gives us the image of Jesus like rummaging around in his toolbox, searching for the most unlikely of tools to use for a job that in Ananias' view would have been the wrong tool for the job. Right? You don't search for bloodthirsty terrorists to use as instruments to advance the message of the cross of Jesus, whom that terrorist had been persecuting. You and I, and probably Ananias too, would be looking for a dude with the best theological degree, right? the most letters of commendation from other faithful Christians. We wouldn't think or even begin to think of using a blunt hammer to spread icing on the cake of the gospel. We wouldn't, but not Jesus. Because Jesus is the sovereign savior of sinners. And his plan, always from the beginning of time until now, until the end of time, is to take the most unlikely of tools out of the toolbox, 
so that he can use them to do miraculously impossible things like drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. Once Ananias gets it, he stops his questioning and he obediently goes. And this is a good lesson for those of us who allow fear to control us instead of a desire to please our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. You never know what one obedient conversation could produce. We never hear of Ananias again after this, just as you don't hear much about the person who shared the gospel with Billy Graham. But Ananias' obedience in going to Saul was one small part of Jesus' sovereign plan of redemption in Saul's life. You never underestimate what one obedient conversation could produce. When Ananias shows up at Saul's bedside, he lays his hands on him in brotherly affection and even refers to him as Brother Saul as he prays for him and watches him regain his sight for the first time as a new believer who could openly proclaim amazing grace. How can it be? I once was blind, but now I see. Saul, the bloodthirsty terrorist, has now become a blood-bought, adopted child of God because Jesus, our sovereign Savior, stepped in and transformed a sinner to a saint. And there you have it. <clears throat> in conclusion, the story of Saul's conversion is both startling and encouraging because in this story, God does the unexpected as he takes his mortal enemy transforms him into family. And here's a few questions for us to think about as we conclude our time together. What is your story? And what has Jesus been using to speak to you lately? First of all, first question, what's your story? I think it's easy for us to be awed by the story, especially if you come from a real dark and dirty or broken background. But I also think it'd be easy for some of us who may not come from a real dark and dirty background, who don't have a story with the bells and whistles of a Damascus road, to kind of feel some disconnection, like somehow you must have a ringer of a testimony to be useful to God. Well, whatever your story is today, if Jesus has saved you and made you his own, then you're now his chosen instrument to be his witness to the ends of the earth. You belong to Jesus. And as we've seen in this story, he loves to use unexpected instruments for his own purposes of extending the glory of his name to the ends of the earth. Why could he not use you with your vanilla testimony? It's actually spiritual pride to believe that only someone with a dark and dirty testimony can be used by God. It's also spiritual pride to believe that someone who has walked with Jesus since an early age cannot be effective in sharing the power of the gospel with others. Think about how effective Ananias was. Why would spiritual pride not be as offensive to God as the murder of his own children? Let me also ask you this. If Jesus is this relentless at chasing down a bloodthirsty terrorist like Saul, even to the extent that he would use Saul's prior education, ill-informed and misunderstood as it was, as well as images of the saints he was responsible for murdering. If Jesus, in his sovereign plan of salvation, used these things to get a hold of Saul, 
What's he been using lately to get a hold of you? What's Jesus been using to speak to you lately? That's the second question. I don't think there's any place that Jesus is unwilling to go to without sinning, of course, to get to you. If he has your picture in his pocket. The cross wasn't too much for him. So the only question left is, are you still spiritually blind? Have your eyes been opened by the gracious work of our crucified, risen, returning Savior? And that's my prayer for all of us. My prayer for all of us is that our eyes will be open to the sovereign Savior who loves to save sinners. My prayer is that each of us would experience for the first time or even the millionth time today the radical transforming grace of a sovereign Savior who took a bloodthirsty terrorist like Saul and saved him so he would become the blood-bought believer known as the Apostle Paul. My prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would lead us to the foot of the bloody cross, to the doorway of the empty tomb, and to a new or renewed vision of the hope of heaven. And that from that place, you and I would be energized and empowered to be a witness to the ends of the earth of the power of the gospel. And that you and I would see Jesus speaking this over us. You are a chosen instrument of mine. Great words to hear, huh? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the story of how you took a bloodthirsty terrorist and transformed him into a blood-bought believer. I pray, God, that you would continue to remind us that there is nothing that is impossible for you. That whatever places of our lives where Satan, sin, or death appear to have a foothold, that you are more than capable of stepping into those places, redeeming us, transforming us, and setting us free from the clutches of those enemies. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would help us to not only see, but to hear you, to come to know you, to know and sense your love for us. Help us to wrestle with that phrase, chosen instrument of yours. Father, that we might know that we belong to you because you reached out and sovereignly snatched us up out of the dark hole of our sin, that you gave us a new heart, that you're actively transforming our lives to be more and more like you. God, make us into your chosen instruments. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.